Hey everyone, welcome to the third ever episode of the Theseus Podcast. I apologize for the hiatus. I got the opportunity to go travel the country and do some political work, so I had to take advantage of that. But in the future, I'll be more diligent to post on Facebook if there's going to be any disruptions to the weekly schedule. Today's episode is called Socio-Capitalism, and we're going to discuss some macroeconomics and then how government and private industry could possibly work together to solve some of the problems plaguing today's America. First, I want to look at some of the natural economic laws that are at play in, our, in every economic system, no matter what it is. And then we're going to see those economic forces at work in our current system, and then look at them in both socialism and capitalism, and then talk about the economic cycles that have plagued humanity throughout history. And then finally, I want to talk about the biggest economic problems that we face today, and then talk about some new ideas to how we might be able to solve these problems in the future. Economics is one of my favorite topics, so I have plenty, idea, plenty of ideas about what we might be able to do. I don't really believe that pure socialism or pure capitalism is the correct answer to the economic problems that we face. So I just hope that you listen to these ideas and then engage with me and see if we can have a discussion um, on what, what we might be able to do to actually solve some of these problems. If, we're gonna, if the people in America are going to take back control of our country from the establishment, then we're going to have to get together and we're going to have to talk about new ideas, ideas that are not being given to us by the mainstream media and by the political uh, people in political power right now. I'd like to start off today by talking about Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations is one of my favorite books, and I believe it's the only information that anybody needs to be able to understand economics and to be able to solve economic problems in any economic system. Unfortunately, this book was written by an intellectual in 1776, so it's a pretty rigorous read and tough for a lot of people to get through. One day, I hope to be able to go through this book chapter by chapter and teach this book in, modern, uh, in a modern interpretation and in a way that everybody can understand it because the content is so important to being able to fix the problems that we face. For now, I'm just going to go over a couple of the main points of the book that are relevant to our discussion today. Often, it's said that Adam Smith and his ideas fathered capitalism. It's true in some ways, but it's also not true in other ways. The Wealth of Nations more discusses principles that, that I like to describe as natural economic laws. These are economic forces that are at play all the time in every human society, things that evolve naturally out of human society as society grows. The reason this book gave birth to Western capitalism is because at the time, Adam Smith presented these ideas and these forces and then presented capitalism as the best way to optimize value of the economy through these forces. Trying to solve economic problems without addressing underlying natural economic forces is like trying to make a plane fly without addressing gravity. It just can't work. And we can't solve economic problems unless we look at these things. The first of these forces is a monetary system. Now, I've talked to quite a number of libertarians who hate the federal government's system of money, and they think that money is a form of oppression from the government, and maybe in our current situation they're right in some ways, but we have to have money. Believe it or not, money was not invented by greedy bankers. Every human society has come up with some sort of baseline unit of agreed-upon value that can be used to exchange value with one another. 
Adam Smith gives a brilliant description in his book on how money was a natural evolution of, uh, along with, that evolved along with human society. So I'll explain to you the way that Adam Smith describes this in a, in a, in a Cliff's Notes type of way. So here's a little story. If I raise cattle and you farm grain, we have to exchange with each other in order to get what we need. You need meat and I need bread. Both of us meet our needs through trades like this with each other, but unfortunately we're not able to optimize the value that we get from the things that we produce when we have to trade them directly with each other. How much value I can get from three healthy cattle is totally dependent on how much grain you were able to get from your harvest this year. As society grows, now maybe there's two or three people who grow grain, okay, but I'm still the only one raising cattle. I'm going to trade with the person who gives me the most grain for cattle. All three of you grain farmers need meat, but I don't need grain from all three of you. If you all three trade with me at different rates, I only need to trade with the person who gives me the best rate. The other farmers still need meat, but I don't need to trade with you. This is where money comes in. In this scenario, the society comes together and has to agree upon a medium of exchange. This is money. I will note here that I've skipped over a large part of Adam Smith's description that uh, talks about how, how the society comes together and how they determine what is going to be that medium of exchange. First, they use types of stones, then it evolved to uh, shiny stones, then gold and silver, etc. So that's, that description's in the book if you want to go read it, but I'm going to skip over that for now. For now, we just need to know that money forms as society grows. Now, each, each grain farmer can sell their grain for whatever price is right for them. They can go to a market. They can sell to other people who need grain. They can, they can take their produce and divide it up into fractional pieces that can then be exchanged for multiple different things with different people. And now I'm able to exchange my cattle for money from each different farmer for a consistent price so that I'm able to get a consistent value no matter who I trade with. So as you can see, money is a natural part of human society's development. Now, as societies grew, different societies then began to interact with each other, and each of them had their own monetary systems or systems of exchange. When these various monetary systems interact with each other, we get what we call markets, and this is the, the development of the economic force of market dynamics. Market dynamics is more specifically broken down into supply versus demand and the creation of price. Think of literally anything you've ever bought. Did you know that no person actually sat down and just decided what the price was going to be? There were invisible market dynamics at play that determined its price. Obviously, there's a lot of nuances to this, this process of price determination, but, but basically price is a function of the current supply and the current demand. Supply varies on many factors like the cost of goods, cost of transportation, and each of these costs has their own price that's also determined by supply and demand. So we have a bunch of different products that are each, that the price of each are determined by their own function of supply and demand, which are in turn affected by other supply and demand functions. So then we have this whole web of interconnected um, uh, forces of supply and demand that are all dependent on each other. 
So it becomes really complicated, but we really have to understand how all this works if we're able to understand really how price is determined, why we cannot reach in with the government and manipulate prices too much because it throws all of these forces off whack and creates all kinds of tangential problems in other areas. The bottom line of what we need to take from this is that there are natural economic forces that determine price, not just some greedy capitalist in a billion-dollar office. Now, I want to talk about greed for just a second, because if greed's not to blame for the failings of capitalism, then why is it so prevalent? A lot of the um, accusations against current, the current capitalist system are, in fact, evil, greedy people at the top. The billionaires, you know, make, getting rich off of the labor of the poor people. And I'm sorry to say that this is actually a, something that has been present in all societies that have ever existed. Greed is a function of human nature, not a function of a specific economic system. There's always going to be greed in the system, and the people that have the ability to be greedy, to gain more wealth, are going to be greedy in order to gain more wealth and more power. The difference between a system like capitalism and a system like socialism is that in capitalism, there is a ladder in the middle of the upper class and the lower class. And on this ladder, people can climb up from the lower class to the upper class. Socialism doesn't get rid of the upper class. What it does is it gets rid of the ladder that allows people to climb from the, uh, the lower class to the upper class. The move from capitalism to socialism is actually the people at the top pulling the ladder up. So we have these two natural economic forces, monetary exchange system and market dynamics that determine price. Every society and government sets up its own system of rules and regulations that create boundaries for how citizens interact with these forces. Capitalism and socialism each represent the two extreme possibilities for how this system can operate. Capitalism sets these market forces free. That's why we get the name free market. It sets them free to work beyond our direct control so that we theoretically can end up with fair markets and fair pricing um, so that value is not lost. They call this the you know, efficient markets. We have a system where anyone can choose to provide any service that they want to society, and then they're rewarded for providing that service based on how much demand there is for that service. Anybody can make money doing almost whatever they want as long as you go out and you find a place where there is a demand for something that is not being met by the current supply. If you provide supply to fulfill that demand, you will make money and you will gain wealth. That is the beauty of capitalism. Now, on the other hand, socialism is the other extreme where people try to take complete control of these market forces instead of setting them free. But because these market forces are natural forces, they're, they're above and beyond human control, kind of like gravity, like I, like I said earlier. Because of this, we can never be as efficient as a free market. So we will, when we are controlling these forces, we will always get less value from a market than what a free market would create. Greed exists in capitalism, but it also exists in socialism. This is why attempts at socialism naturally devolve into communism. Capitalism and socialism are both idealistic aims, and neither can be achieved by humans in their pure form. 
The downsides of both systems are created by the fact that these natural economic forces exist. There are people who are unable to provide valuable service to society, and these people are left behind by capitalism. Conversely, socialism requires a group in leadership to be the one controlling these market forces. And because of human nature, this group in leadership will eventually gain more and more wealth and more and more power to themselves until they cannot be removed from their position. In addition to this, the downsides of both systems are fixed by the benefits of the other system. Capitalism leaves plenty of people behind, and over time, more and more people are left behind, so the group at the bottom grows larger and larger. And eventually, people look at that and they say, well, the government just needs to help those people. And as that group grows and grows, it makes more sense that the government would just help everybody instead of just those people. So this is how we get from capitalism to socialism. So we attempt to regulate more and more, and then we intervene more and more, and then we find ourselves pretty much in the place that we're at in America right now. We have tons of problems. We don't know how to fix them. We see this, this idea, this idealistic aim that sounds good because the benefits do fix the problems that we're, that we're facing right now. But the problem is we can look at history and see that that will not work. With socialism, the group in control hoards more and more wealth and more and more power until eventually they don't give it up. And this is where communism forms. And then eventually, the, these problems with communism, they, the, the society devolves and devolves until finally the people get fed up and they overthrow the system. And they bring freedom and bring liberty to society and new capitalism is born. This is the cycle that we find ourselves in. This is the cycle of human societies throughout history. And we can look and we can see um, how democracies have risen and fallen and capitalism has risen and fallen and socialism has come and gone. This is where we're left with two bad options right now. Right now, the establishment in our, in our society controls what our options are. We're told who we can vote for. We're told what policies we should care about, etc. things that you've heard me say already. This is where we have to come together. This is what I'm trying to do here, to come up with new ideas, ideas that are not handed to us by the people who want to stay in power. We, we don't just need to take their ideas and then decide which one we want. We need to come up with what we think will actually work, and then we need to elect representatives who will come up with these new ideas, who will bring these new ideas forward and put them in the public sphere and hopefully eventually vote on them. We have the Democrats who want to take a hard left towards socialism. And on the other side, we have the Republicans who pretty much pretend like there's no problems with capitalism. Both of these groups are incorrect, in my opinion. So what are we going to do? The people in the middle who think, yeah, there's some big problems with our current Western capitalist system. But at the same time, it's pretty obvious looking through history that we can't just take a hard turn towards socialism and start nationalizing every major industry that we have. So as a starting point for this discussion, I have some ideas of my own for a system that I have called socio-capitalism. Now, when I came up with that term, I looked it up on the internet to see if it had been used before, and I, I hoped that it hadn't, but as a matter of fact, it has started popping up in, on the internet in various places. It doesn't actually have a solid definition yet, 
It's more just a concept of that people, a word that people use to describe a, an intermediate step or a breeding of socialism and capitalism. And I think that this is good. I've, I've read a few, you can find a few brief write-ups on socio-capitalism, or it's also called social capitalism. And I would encourage you to go look that up and read it. Um, I've read these, and I consistently agree with the principles that they put forward. But I consistently disagree with the policies that they use to get there. See, the current discussion that's out there on the internet of social capitalism involves nationalizing a few specific entire industries. Now, to be clear, socialism is the nationalization of all industries where the government steps in and controls prices, production, jobs in every industry. So basically the current discussion of social capitalism is, is simply a, a short step towards socialism. Now, that's why that's still a slippery slope. And that's why I want to present some new ideas for how we could use the capitalist system or use, use the government to incentivize the capitalist system to fix these problems instead of just having the government do it. In our current capitalist system, people pursue what they're incentivized to pursue. It's really that simple. The concept of incentive is very important to understand. See, CEOs and board members are not always being just greedy. They don't do everything out of greed. They're just doing what the system has incentivized them to do. If we want to change the outcomes of capitalism, we have to change the incentive structures of capitalism. The people out there, they're just playing by the rules that we, the people, have elected government representatives to put in place. So if we want to change the outcomes, we don't need to tear the system down. We have to change the rules. And this is what I'm proposing. So currently for a large corporation, the main incentive is to make sure the stock goes up. There's a funny quote in, in Silicon Valley, the show, if you've ever seen it on HBO, if you've never seen it, I recommend it. It's, it's really good. It has some language and uh, adult themes, but it, it's, it's hilarious. But they say, he, um, the new CEO, he says, what is our product? And his answer is that our product is our stock. And this is a perfect example of our current system. And this is where most people that hate the current capitalist system find their problems. With the current corporate tax structure, large companies are able to hire expensive accounting teams to figure out how to show on paper that all their profits come from overseas and really they didn't have that many profits in the United States, which is all just, it's accounting magic that happens on paper so that at the end of the day, they don't have to pay taxes in the U.S. Now, is this out of pure greed or is this just they're just being business people and they're doing whatever they can to maximize their, their profits and their revenue to help their stock price go up. And obviously, taxes come straight out of profit. So the less taxes you can pay, the more profits you're going to have, the more money you're going to take home at the end of the day. This tax gamesmanship happens at the same time that the hourly employees and the lowest level of full-time employees, they don't make enough money to live on. They can't afford health care. And they're really the ones that make these companies run. Now, this isn't only because of greed. It's not that these 
these CEOs and board members, they just don't care about those people. That's, I don't have that dim of view of humanity quite yet. Um, I think that this is simply because that's how corporations are incentivized to act. They're just playing the game by the rules that we've set before them. So I propose a rule change. Instead of using the inefficiency of the government, because we all know, we've all been to the DMV, we've all tried to, I mean, some of us have tried to deal with the IRS, we've all tried to do various things uh, interacting with government entities, and they all suck. There's not one government institution that works well, or that's profitable, or that's efficient. Look at the problems with USPS right now versus the profitability of FedEx and UPS or Amazon. Amazon found that it was cheaper to build their entire delivery system, to build out their entire delivery pipeline themselves. They even built airports and airplanes because it's cheaper than using any of the existing companies. And so the government really sucks at doing anything. So why would we want the government to take control of people's health care and wages when instead we can create an incentive structure so that these large corporations would actually do these things. They would provide their employees with good wages and provide them with health care uh, so that they would be the ones fixing the problems, not the government. So let's get creative for a minute. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to create a threshold in order to define when a company is large enough to play by this new set of rules that we're going to create. So beyond that threshold, there, we could have any small business choose, choose to take on these new incentives, but most of them aren't going to be able to afford to. This is mostly going to be a new set of rules for these large companies that are able to have an unfair advantage in the current system because they're so large, they can dodge pretty much all their taxes uh, anywhere that they want to, whereas small businesses can't necessarily do that. So this is where we're still going to have to have some discussions. I don't really have a good plan for it yet um, of how we could define these companies. I think it's pretty obvious that companies like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, Netflix, these kind of companies would definitely be included, but we need a way to, to uh, define them on paper in a way so that other companies, when they grow to this point, will, will be able to be grouped in with this, this new tax incentive structure as well. So the point is that we're going to create this new incentive structure um, so that actually ends up being better for these companies and better for their employees. And I believe that we can do this. I really do. So let's say we scrap all federal taxes. I'm not going to present an idea to replace Social Security at this point because that's a whole other discussion with a lot of other factors at play. Um, but just for here, let's, so we're getting rid of all corporate federal tax. And then we create one tax, just one, one tax, something they can't dodge. It's 10, that would be 10% of all domestic revenue. That is within the U.S. So 10% of all their revenue, not profits, not anything that they can dodge or move or shift off seas, overseas, just revenue. Now, for these companies, that's a lot of money. And most of them would not be able to afford to do that and still keep growing the way that they do. So I, I have a way around that. So that's, that's a lot of money. But then what we have to do is we pick five metrics for these companies to hit. Now, for each metric that they hit, they get a 2% deduction off of, that, off of that tax rate. So if they hit 
two metrics, they pay 6% of their revenue. If they hit five metrics, they pay no taxes. So no matter how much revenue or profit they make, they would be able to pay zero taxes. Companies like Apple would not have to hoard cash overseas, siphoning it out of the United States economy. They would be able to let that flow freely back into the U.S. and pay no taxes. But at the same time, they would be hitting these metrics so that their employees are taken care of. And they're providing society an equivalent value of the taxes that they're getting a break on. So deciding what these metrics are going to be is, is a discussion that I really want to have with people. I want people to, to come to me and, and, and talk about different, different ways that we could solve this, different metrics we could create that would solve problems for the regular person. Um, but here's, here's a few that I have I've come up with just as to be a starting point for discussion. These aren't necessarily the correct answers. This isn't perfect. It's just a starting point that I've, that I've come up with. So for the first metric, I would recommend something along these lines. In the current year, a company must add United States jobs equal to half of the previous year's domestic growth. So what that means would be, we'll take a company, we'll take Apple for example. If Apple grows 20% year over year in the United States, their, their U.S. business, then the next year they would have to cre- increase their United States jobs by 10%. That's a lot of jobs created in the U.S. And as you'll see in these other metrics, they're going to be good jobs. So the second idea for a metric that I've had follows along the same lines in that Every year, the company raises the pay of all employees up to a certain level, probably around $100,000 salary. So these are like the, the lowest bracket of employees, which are also the majority of employees probably. Every year, the company raises those employees' pay by a percentage that's equal to company growth, but that's maxed out at double the U.S. GDP growth for the or 3%, whichever one's higher. So I know there's a lot of numbers in that, so I'll break it down for you. We'll take Apple again. Say they grow 20% in a year. So that doesn't mean that they have to increase all the employees' pay by 20%. That would be a ridiculous burden to place on these companies. They would never be able to operate that way. What that means is that so 20%, that 20% then gets maxed out at double U.S. GDP growth for the same year, or 3%, whichever of those two is higher. So if, if U.S. GDP grows 2% in that same year, where Apple grows 20%, then double GDP is 4%. So 4% is now the max that Apple has to increase their employees' pay. So all the employees at that lower level that work at Apple would receive a 4% pay increase for that year. This is not the same thing as an inflation raise. This is a company growth raise. So this is as the company is growing, the employees are required to get paid more instead of just, you know, the company increasing your wages by 1% or 2% because of inflation. So to further that point, if U.S. GDP growth was flat or like 1%, then double GDP would be 0 or 2%. So then 3% is actually the max because 
we don't want if, if Apple grows like crazy in one year, but the U.S. doesn't grow, the the employees at Apple should still get a pay raise. So we would cap it at three percent. So that ensures that as these companies are growing like crazy and making and making cash piles of cash hand over fist, that their employees are not getting left behind, that they're still creating jobs in the U.S. They're not outsourcing more jobs as they grow to other countries. The third idea for a metric that I have relates to the uh, base salaries that employees make. So I would recommend something along the lines of this, that all employees who work at least 30 hours a week must be paid at a rate that if they worked 40 hours a week, they would make a livable wage for the city that they live in. This is a simple metric that so that an employee who works full time, even if they're, you know, someone behind the counter at an Apple store, if they work full time, they will be able to live where they work. No matter where they are in the U.S., this means that base pay is going to be higher in cities like New York, San Francisco, you know, places like that. And it's going to be lower in rural areas or places with lower population densities, things like that. So to recap, so far we've hit with our three metrics that I've, that I've put forward, we've hit the growing domestic jobs, we've hit increasing employees' wages every year, and we've hit base pay being a livable wage for their employees. These are three of the biggest problems in, our, in the U.S. right now economically. So these metrics address three of those problems. The fourth one I, that I would address with a metric is healthcare. So the fourth metric would go something like this, that these companies have to negotiate healthcare plans with private insurance companies, not government-provided insurance, but negotiate with private insurance companies to provide these policies, a minimum disaster and emergency plan for all employees over the age of 21, which means that they are not on any parental health or have any school-related healthcare that these, these are adults who are probably out on their own working for these companies. They at least must be provided emergency and disaster coverage. Now, in addition to that, they should be required to provide a couple of different policies for their employees. They should provide a basic policy that's basically just the disaster and emergency plus maybe dental and vision. And they provide that for free for all full-time employees, whether they work you know, hourly for $15 an hour, or whether they were salaried for $200,000 a year. They would get this basic level of healthcare for free from the company. In addition to that, they would provide an option for a premium plan that has better coverage that would be partially or mostly subsidized by the company because the company is going to get a good deal because they're con contracted with private insurance companies to, to cover lots of people. So they're going to get good deals and they can allow the employees the opportunity to pay out of their paycheck before taxes to have this premium plan. So what this does is, I mean, th that option is already available in a lot of big companies, but it's not available to the hourly full-time. It's only available to the higher level and salaried employees. So that's four metrics. We'd have to come up with a fifth one. We need to adjust the numbers and figure out what might actually work. But we've those metrics cover these large corporations who grow, who make billions of dollars in cash every year, are now 
covering their employees' health care. They're covering their em- they're making sure their employees make a livable wage. They're increasing domestic jobs growth, and they're increasing their previous em- employees' wages. These are all things that we need to happen, and they need to be done through the private industry and not by the government. And in addition to this, these companies would not have to pay any taxes. They would not have to uh, figure out how to dodge taxes. So they actually can cut, they can cut back some of their accounting work, some of their accounting expenses. They can cut back some of their financial expenses, and they can bring as much money as they want into the United States to continue to help the U.S. economy grow. So think about that. It sounds like a lot of expenses for these companies but they could reduce their federal tax burden to zero. The people who at the bottom of these companies who make these companies run would be taken care of by their employer instead of by the government, and we would see wages rise, people would have health care, U.S. jobs would grow, and companies would actually be able to grow faster all at the same time. So that's my first idea is to change the tax structure to incentivize companies to fix the economic problems that are caused by their greed. The next thing we could do from the government actually this time is to provide a sort of emergency fund for the people at the bottom of capitalism that have been left behind by the system. Again, these numbers that I'm going to present are just ones that I came up with that sound like a good starting point. Uh, I'd love to have discussions on what might work best. But let's say for the sake of discussion that Defining a household based on tax returns, every adult in the household where the household income is less than $50,000 per adult, including those unemployed, has access to a government grant of $30,000. Now, what this would be is basically an interest-free line of credit. So if, you, if you're a, a married couple and two people in the household and you collectively make $90,000 a year, you both would have access to this government-backed interest-free line of credit. So how this would work is that you can tap into it in emergency situations. If you total your car, if you have a medical emergency, you can go and get out money to cover these things, and you can pay it back, or you cannot pay it back, but if you don't pay it back, then that, that amount that you can deduct later is reduced. To prevent fraud... And from people taking advantage of this system, private banks would be entrusted with giving out these lines of credit and vetting the request from people to ensure that money is actually needed for an emergency. Say your son breaks his arm, okay? You go to the doctor, you get it fixed, you get the bill, and then you take it to a bank. And then the bank, if as long as it's a valid medical expense and you qualify for the line of credit, they give you the money. It's that simple. See, the banks have no reason to be restrictive here because they assume no risk for the loans that they're giving out. So lines of credit typically are paid back. Uh, if, they, if they're not paid back, then the money's not available in the future. So how I would propose that these people pay it back because obviously the people in the lowest economic class are not going to be able to afford uh, monthly payments on a $10,000, $20,000 loan which is why they don't get them now. So what I would suggest is that we get rid of all income taxes for this lowest bracket of people. The, their income tax, rev, the income tax revenue from these people is already 
a small fraction of, of the total tax revenue anyways. So we just scrap that tax, the income tax. And then if they, if these people take out money from their line of credit to pay for an emergency expense, then they take on a 10% tax from their income. If they don't have any income, they don't pay any tax. They take on a 10% tax from their income that goes towards paying down that loan. And that's it. If they don't take out any money from the loan, from the line of credit, then they don't have to pay any taxes on their income. This policy would greatly lower the economic burden on the lower class and even the lower middle class. I, I agree that it's, it's unreasonable to expect a person who makes 35000 or 50000 or even really sixty dollars or $70,000 a year, depending on where they live, to, to come up with the money to cover a, a major emergency situation. Um, if, if you're making sixty or seventy and you live by yourself, then you can probably save enough money to cover at least a, a down payment on, on an expense of some sort. But speaking generally, like I do agree that there is an economic burden on people, a risk of participating in society that they can't afford to take. They can't afford to, to break their arm, to total their car, to lose their job. Um, and, it's, and it's unreasonable to just put that expectation on them. But I also agree that it's the wrong solution to say that the government should just give everybody health care or give everybody a basic income. That is, that's not the right answer that will bankrupt our government, that will tear down our economy, and it will ruin our country. The, the, the cost of what I just presented to you, the $30,000 line of credit, if that was applied to every qualified American, it would run probably around $3 trillion of at-risk capital for the United States government. And that's a $3 trillion that is capped. That's not a regular expense or added to the budget or something that will grow over time. It may grow over time as population grows, but around $3 trillion of at-risk capital is a small price to pay compared to some of these proposals that we've heard for Medicare for All or universal basic income that suggest spending tens of trillions of dollars over 10 years in order to provide these things for society. So now we've addressed a starting point for new ideas to deal with greedy corporations taking advantage of their employees. And we've also addressed unexpected emergency expenses for the lower and lower middle class. The last idea that I have today is an alternative approach to government housing. So this will round out kind of some of the major economic problems that we face and presenting ideas for how to use the private markets, not governments, to solve them. The last idea really leans into the principle of the principles of this idea of socio-capitalism, where the government ensures that everyone is helped, but that they are helped by the free market. First of all, we need to create a threshold to define which people are qualified for this additional housing help. And I, I would think that we should just use the same qualification as the line of credit. So basically, we create this um, group of people who's qualified for all of these, these government um, assistances. And the under, or under 50K a year per adult, per household, I think is, is a pretty good threshold that could be applied to people that live in high cost of living and low cost of living areas pretty fairly. So this, this next idea would be that the government provides each of those households a $1,000 grant towards housing every month. 
at most, this annual cost would reach probably around $100 billion or so, which is really, it sounds like a lot, but it's really a small price to pay in addition to our budget in order to provide the ability for the, these families to get housing. And it's not just the government going and building a bunch of buildings and just giving it to people for free. This is the government funding the private market so that, yes, the government is, is spending a good chunk of money in order to give things to these people, but that money is then going into profitable private enterprises so that the economy does continue to grow and that the private markets do continue to grow and get better and create better profits. It'll allow competition to stay um, because what we don't want is for the government to create housing that gets rid of competition. Because competition is how things get better, how things improve, and how more wealth is created for everybody. Now, to prevent these greedy capitalists who own these apartment buildings from simply increasing the price of the apartments without increasing the quality at all, the government would have to provide a backstop, um, a fallback plan for the tenants of these buildings. And here's kind of how it would work. Again, this is please, this is just an idea. Um, it, it might not actually work. It might not be that great of an idea. It's just, it's just something different, something that's not being talked about. Um, just to give you an idea of, of ways that we can think and approach these problems differently. Okay, so we would have a system where each city would be required to take applications from people to be in government housing. And once a city reaches a certain number of people who have applied for government housing that the government sets, then the city would be required to pick a plot of land that they own that could be given to the federal government to build housing. Then, now I can hear the libertarians getting mad already, but I'm not saying that it just automatically happens. The city picks the land, but then they have to put it to a vote in their next, on the next ballot. And this vote in this, at the city level would have to pass. And then the government would come and build housing on that land for people. Housing that would be capped at $1,000 a month rent. So it's a wash for the government, for the people who, um, who need the housing and who qualify for the $1,000 a month grant. So those are some of the ideas that I have for how we can use the government to redirect the free markets to solve some of the problems that we face. I hope you can kind of get an idea of how the way that I'm describing socio-capitalism and, and the way that I think that we should be trying to move forward as a country uh, without turning towards the black hole of socialism that leads to the inevitable conclusion that it has for centuries in human, in human history. Um, another thing that we need to talk about sometime, I'm not going to go into it today because I know I've already given a lot of information uh, is the out-of-control government spending. And there are ways I think we can adjust, adjust that, but there's also a couple reasons why I think it's not as big of a deal as people make it out to be, at least not it immediately. The way that the Democrats have proposed to go and really the way that Republicans have started voting as well will get us to an out-of-control situation soon, but I don't think that we're quite there yet. What I'm proposing here are a few, yes, it involves more spending, but a few one-time expenses and some greatly reduced projections for expenses. 
than what's being offered by the current democratic policies. And it's also better than the zero solutions being offered by Republicans. These are the types of solutions that we have to find. We have to find solutions that address the problems that we face economically that have been created by our capitalist incentive structure, while at the same time preserving the overall prosperity that a capitalist system can create for everybody. We do have the most free and the most prosperous country in the entire world, and we, we need to keep it that way. We need to realize that we do have that, because I think we lose sight of that a lot of times. We see the problems that we have in our country, and they are very much first world problems. And please, if, if we want to actually fix these problems, we have to keep in mind where we are in relation to the West, rest of the world and how we got there. So that's where I'll stop for this week. I know there's a lot of information um, and some complicated ideas, complicated concepts. Please go back and listen to this a couple more times until, until you, you grasp the kind, of, the kind of economic system and the kind of ideas and solutions that I've tried to present here. Again, we can't solve economic problems unless we address and, and solve these problems in view of the underlying economic forces that are at work in our society. Some of these forces have been written off as being part of capitalism when we need to understand that they're actually things, they're actually forces that will be at work no matter what our economic system is. Capitalism just happens to be where we've seen them at play so far. So please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you like what you've heard. Uh, follow Theseus Podcast on all social media and engage with me on Twitter. I'd love to have discussions, or you can email me at theseuspodcast at gmail.com. Next week, I'll be talking about a party platform that I believe would be viable in our current political climate. One thing I've learned about libertarianism is that it, it won't work as a political party. Sorry if that offends you, but libertarianism is more an ideology. It's too diverse. There's too many dissensions within the group. A libertarian from New York is not the same as a, lib as a libertarian from Texas is not the same as a libertarian from California. Okay, these people cannot agree on a national stage on policy. So it's a good ideology to have that allows you to create some good policies, but at the same time, it's not going to work as a party. It cannot be unified on a national scale. So I believe that we need another third party to emerge, a party that can be a place for that can agree on certain premises and then create policies off of those premises that can actually be agreed upon by people, whether you're liberal, whether you're conservative, whether you're in the middle. And if you think that sounds too good to be true, then please just listen next week and see what you think. Stay hopeful for our country. and I'll see you next Monday.